So we're here at the end of our sermon series, at least for this semester. Uh, I'm wrapping up my first sermon series in RUF. And uh, this semester's been filled with a lot of things. Uh, There's been some awkward laughter a lot in our freshman, sophomore small group on Monday, Thursdays. There's been awkward laughter at large group. Um, I've been underwhelmed. I've been overwhelmed. I've been frustrated. I've been sure. I've been everything. But one thing that has been sure is that uh, I have enjoyed being around y'all, whether here or the CAF or in the UC, wherever I've been, had a chance to be around students. It's been amazing. So thank y'all for hanging in there with me. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to John chapter 15, and we will conclude this sermon series. I've said a lot this semester. I want to say it again. RUF, uh, we want RUF to be a welcoming place uh, for the convinced or the unconvinced alike, for the humans or the zombies. Um, Caleb gave me that joke. Um, uh, but we wanted to be a safe place for uh, you know, the convinced, the unconvinced, uh, the mature Christian, the new Christian, the skeptic. Uh, wherever you are, we want you to feel welcome here as we come to God's word and hear from him as we believe he speaks to us. And we've been exploring this question this semester, who is I am? And we've been bouncing through the gospel of John and looking at how Jesus himself specifically answers that question. And tonight, just a reminder of where we are. In John chapter 15, we're in the middle of what is called the farewell discourse. Jesus is talking to his disciples the night that he is betrayed. They've just had the Last Supper. Now in John 15, they're actually on their way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, And he's giving them words of encouragement, exhortation. He's about to leave them. They're scared. So, but there's a shift here. He shifted from allaying their fears to actually telling them how they are going to carry on, what their mission is going to be, how they will live without him. And I think there's no uh, better way to conclude the sermon series here than what Jesus says here, that he is the true vine. So let's read the first 11 verses of John 15 together. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it, may be, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Let's pray before we look into it. Father, we come and we ask, as we have every week, Um, that you would speak to us here through your word by the power of your spirit at work within us. 
and through us. Father, give to us the words of life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If I uh, said to you that needs to be number one in your life, I think most of you in here would agree with that. Uh, You'd think, you know, yeah, that sounds right. Jesus should be number one in my life. But I I wonder if you step back from that and, and ask yourself, what would Jesus say about being number one in your life? So we've been looking at this question, who is I am this semester, and if if there's one thing that I think Jesus has conveyed to us, I think it's this. I'm not number one on a list. I'm it. And if you don't have me, you have nothing. He's been very clear about that. He's been clear about that with his skeptics. He's been clear about that with his disciples, with his innermost uh, group. I mean, think about it. Think back to the bread. The meaning of bread back then is completely lost on us because for us, it's just kind of a bonus or actually something you abstain from when you want to lose the uh, spare tire, as they call it. Um, or as I call it, I don't know. Um, for them back then, bread was daily sustenance. To have bread was life, okay? To put food on the table. And Jesus doesn't say, I will show you bread that endures, I will show you how to get bread that never runs out. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the bread of life. Okay, water. Back then, back then you actually had to work every day to get water for the day. It was a chore, okay? And Jesus comes and he doesn't say to the woman at the well, let me show you where the good water is. He says, no, I am the living water. And if you drink of me, you will never thirst again. Do you want a new life? Do you need a resurrection? Do you want to be a new creation? Jesus doesn't show me, doesn't say, let let me show you how to get a new life. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am either it for you or I'm nothing. You either have me or you have nothing. I either am your life or you don't have life. I think Jesus has been 100% clear about that. And I don't think any image drives this home more for us than here in John 15 as he says that he is the vine and we are the branches. And his banner over me is love. Song, Sunday school song. Anybody know that? Um, Anyway, my children like that song. He says, I am the true vine. I want to look at three things here. The metaphor, the problem, and the command, okay? First, just thinking about the metaphor itself. What does it mean? What is Jesus getting at? Well, I think the first thing you gotta ask yourself is how did the disciples hear it? Who is he talking to? He's talking to 11 Jewish men. 11 Jewish men who knew the scriptures. 11 Jewish men who believed that Jesus is this coming Messiah. They may, they may have misconceived how he was gonna go about it. They thought that they were gonna be getting glory with him and they were maybe gonna sit on some thrones with him or something. They don't know exactly how it's coming. But they're 11 Jewish men who know the scriptures and in the Old Testament, this recurring metaphor of God's people is that they are the vine of God, okay? Uh, God refers to his people as a vine. Psalm 80 uh, the psalmist refers to the Psalm 80. Um, the psalmist says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it and it took deep root, root and filled the land. 
Okay, that's clear what he's talking about. He took Israel out of Egypt, took them to the promised land, drove out the nations, and put them there where they were supposed to live and spread their branches. Okay? But the psalmist doesn't stop there. The psalmist then says this to God. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand had planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. You see, the psalmist is referred to as the vine was not doing so well. God had handed it over. He had handed it over to be ravaged. That is Israel, Judah, the people of God, handed over to Babylon into exile. Okay, and the psalmist is begging, he's beseeching God to restore it. So it's in that context that Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am what Israel was supposed to be. I am what God called Israel to be. God's chosen people were supposed to fill the earth like a vine and fill the earth with fruit from God. They were to be a blessing uh, to the nations, a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham, okay? Isaiah 27, uh, he says that the nation was supposed to blossom and fill the whole world with fruit, okay? And from it would come even more branches. And this, this is where Jesus is the true vine. Branches only get life from the vine itself. And what Jesus has come back to again and again and again is that life itself is only to be found in him. And he drives that home here in this image. And that's precisely the point. Life is only found in him. There's this theological concept. We give the phrase union with Christ, okay? That's a phrase that you won't find in the Bible, but it is foundational to the theology of the New Testament. Being in Christ. A phrase, um, foundational um, for Paul as he's tying all the implications of what it is to be saved, what it is to be a Christian, how it is to live the Christian life. You are to live it in Christ. He talks about in Christ, in him, in the beloved, over and over in Romans and Ephesians, all of Paul's letters. He's always constantly referring, referring to being in Christ. The New Testament writers are completely caught up with this concept. And it tells, it tells us a few things. One, you know, we've said this over and over. Jesus didn't come just to give us some good advice. He didn't come just to be a good teacher. He didn't just come to give us some hooks to hang our hat on so that we might have this little uh, way of living our life. He didn't come just to be a king ruling on high. He didn't come just to make us feel better and say, hey, I love you, love me back. No, he says he came because he's it. He is life itself for all things. Renewal of all things is found in him. Restoration of all things is found in him. He brings it all. He is our life if we are Christians. Think about the metaphor. He is the vine, we are the branches. Whatever is, happens to the vine is going to happen to the branches. Whatever is true of the vine is true of the branches. 
There's this living, organic union between the two. It's why Paul can say that as Christ was crucified, so we were also, our old selves were also put to death with him. And as Christ was raised to new life, so we were raised to new life with him. And as Christ was exalted and seated at the right hand of God, so Paul can say in Ephesians 2, so that we also are seated in heavenly places with him. What is true of him is true of us. This is a vivid illustration of this for me. This past summer, we stopped in Auburn, Alabama. I've driven through there a couple of times in my life, uh, but I'd never been to Tumor's Corner. I don't know if any of y'all know about this, but Tumor's Corner, it's it's downtown, right off campus. Uh, When Auburn football wins, all the fans go to Tumor's Corner and they roll these two oak trees, I think it's two, two oak trees with uh, toilet paper to celebrate their win and a year or two ago this was pretty big news so much of y'all know this an Alabama fan poisoned Tumor's Oaks okay and so we were driving through Auburn, Alabama I was like we've got to stop by this place I've never seen these oaks I want to see them before they're completely dead and it was sad y'all we, I, we had the boys with us we parked uh, at Tumor's drugstore and we walked over to the oaks and they're surrounded by fence and just kind of they were just it was summertime There was not a hint of green, not a hint of life in those trees. Look up at the branch. How did I know that? I knew that because I looked at the branches. The leaves were dead and dry and brown. They were dead trees. I knew that the whole thing was dead. Because as I saw the branches and the branches were dead, the branches draw life from the tree. There was no life for them to draw from anymore, so they were dead. So what Jesus says when he says that, we are the, that he's the vine and we are the branches, he is saying that we are, in, we are inherently dependent. By our nature, we draw life from something. We have to. It's in our nature. So in other words, you cannot change yourself. You cannot, uh, by your own will or exertion, live on your own. The only way that a branch can grow and draw life is if it's connected to a life source. So the question is, what are you drawing life from? What is, it, what is it that you are drawing life from day to day here as a student? You draw life from something. You cannot draw life from yourself. Is it your reputation? How well you're doing in school? You name it, right? What are you drawing from? What is, what is the fuel of your life what gets you going what motivates you what causes you to stop and say you know what I need to work on this what gets you out of bed in the morning Um, I have a hard enough time getting out of bed as it is ask my wife Um, but you know in the mornings that it's the hardest for me to get out of bed is when I'm overwhelmed when I'm overwhelmed, um, I view my day as pass or fail on what I need to do that day. And there's something that goes on in my head that says, if I don't get out of bed, then I don't have to face it. I have no fuel to get going because I know pass or fail that day, I'm still going to be empty at the end of it. Because what's fueling me to get out of bed is empty. Some of you come to Jesus, you've come to Jesus, you're 
at college, you're trying to live as a Christian, you're trying to be a disciple, you're trying to be in the vine, you are trying so hard to change and you are exhausted. It's because you're depending on your efforts. You're depending on your motivations. What you're doing at the beginning and end of every day is staring at yourself. And at the end of the day, you're exhausted or maybe even frustrated or maybe even bitter and you don't even know what to point to. It's because what Jesus says here is apart from him, we have nothing. Okay, but let's move on. There's a, well, sorry, never mind. I got an illustration, helpful illustration to tie that all together. Think about a Christmas tree, right? You get a Christmas tree, the thing looks beautiful, it's just recently been cut down, or maybe, I don't know who ever's, I've never cut my own Christmas tree down, maybe you've done that, maybe that's a tradition in your family, but you get this Christmas tree, um, you've cut it away from its life source, and you know, it's our favorite part of Christmas to get the tree up, we bring it home, we decorate it with all these great ornaments, all tinsel, beads, lights, whatever, um, we look at it and it's beautiful and it just, it encapsulates the joy of Christmas for us, right? But is the thing alive? No. Because it's separated from its life source. It's dead, and it's only a matter of time that that death will start to show itself. And then we light it on fire because it's flammable. It's awesome. Um, just joking. The question is, are you just dressing up? Are you playing dress up every day? You're doing the right things. You're staying away from the wrong things. You're well-liked. Things are going pretty well. You're working hard. You're going, going, going. But at the end of the day, you know something to be true of your heart. It's dying. You can't quite figure it out. Because it's not connected to a life source. It's connected to things that will not last. Christian is someone who finally realizes that there is no life in here by itself. Christian is one who has realized that rather life is only, only in Jesus. So what makes Christian a Christian is not the life that he lives, but rather the source from whom he gets life itself. We see this problem here, second point. That was the longest point. Um, The problem here. You see, the the passage here, Jesus kind of concentrates and he emphasizes fruit-bearing. That if we are drawing life from him, there will be fruit. There will be something to show for it. And then we read in verse 2 and verse 6. Verse 2, we read that every branch that doesn't bear fruit, God takes away. We read in verse 6 that those who don't abide are thrown aside and then gathered up and thrown into a fire. So what gives here? We're attached to Jesus, but if we're not bearing enough fruit, he just cuts us off doesn't seem like that union with Christ thing is so special if I can be cut off at any time. But remember Jesus' words as, as we've seen him this semester, John 6. He said that if anybody comes to him, he will not turn him away. And all that the Father give him will come to him. Okay, John chapter 10. He said, none can snatch them out of my Father's hand. None. Here in uh, chapter 15, a few verses after where we stop, in verse 16, he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So in other words, you do not, you cannot lose salvation. The Bible is clear about that. 
But the thing that the problem that we have here is we see that these branches are attached, but then they're cut off and thrown away. How do we understand that? Again, remember, who is Jesus talking to? Eleven Jewish men about this metaphor that God used throughout the Old Testament uh, to describe his people. So in that metaphor, kind of connecting it to its past, what is a dead branch on that vine? Well, immediately for the, these 11 Jewish men sitting here, a dead branch cut off from the vine would be someone descended from Abraham, a Jew by blood, who didn't accept Jesus as the promised Messiah. Okay, one who would say, I don't know what to think about this guy, Jesus, but I'm a Jew, so it's okay. So it would be somebody who was of the vine, but not in the vine. What does that look like for us? I think there's two ways we can see it. One way you can see those who claim to be Christians, go to church, born in church, raised in church, in church, in Bible study, friends with Christians... If somebody asked you if you were a Christian, you would be offended. Of course I am. But other than the label, Jesus has nothing to do with your life. And that doesn't bother you. He becomes nothing but a mere accessory. Second way I think we see it is, is being like the Christmas tree. Having all the trappings. We're just throwing ornament after ornament after ornament after ornament. But you see, the problem is we, we want to change... But what we do is we keep living like the change happens from the outside in. It would do no use to go to Tumor's Corner and start painting the leaves green. It would do no use. It would do nothing. You bear fruit for fruit's sake because you think it is what defines you. And here's the interesting part of this image here that Jesus gives us. Whether you're merely of the vine or whether you're legitimately in it, you notice that with both, the vine dresser still uses a knife. Think about that. Whether you're merely of the vine or legitimately in the vine, Jesus says the vine dresser will take the knife to both. How is that? Bearing fruit involves a knife. He clears those who don't bear fruit. And he cleans or prunes those so that they will bear more fruit. The vivid illustration of this for me is always every year, um, kind of the end of winter, beginning of spring, um, if you've ever been in charge of keeping a yard up, um, which sometimes I take joy in, sometimes not so much, uh, but that, that transition from winter to spring, you go out to your yard and your prettiest plants and hedges and crepe myrtles and whatever, you just, you tear them apart for the most part. And you drive around neighborhoods in this time of transition and you see all this debris from their yards piled up on the street and you're like, man, they must have just gutted everything. But then spring rolls around and everything starts blooming. You drive, you drive around to those same houses and what do you see? They're bursting forth with bloom and life and color. All these things that they cut away have actually now come back bigger and better than ever. And if you've ever inherited a yard or gone to a yard that has not been trimmed back in years, yeah, there may be growth there, but it's choked. And it's stifled. And it may be green, but actually it's dead. It doesn't produce anything. Think about this. What, I don't know how much y'all have experienced this, but what, what part of something do you prune? 
when you're dealing with like a hedge or something, what do you prune? You prune that which sticks out, right? Farther than the others. You prune it back to that, what it's, that which it's rooted in. And if you think about the metaphor, if you carry it to its logical implication, that cannot feel good. To have a knife taken to you, right? That can't feel good. But Jesus says God does this for our good, that we would bear more fruit. Verse five, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. He's saying that if there's any aspect of your life that is apart from me, it is lifeless and our father will cut it away that you might truly live. Have you ever prayed for patience? Have you ever paid, prayed for gentleness? Have you ever prayed for wisdom? The logical conclusion there, when you legitimately pray for those things and desire those things, is that you better get ready for God to cut some things away. That's how he deals with us. I put this quote of this song in your handout. I want to read it. Uh, it was a John Newton hymn, and there's actually an REF version of it. We'll sing it one day, maybe. Um, I just want to read it here in your quotes. John Newton, he's just writing about a prayer that he prayed to God. He prayed for grace and faith, is what he prayed for. And he says that, I, I hoped in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. But instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Lord, why is this I trembling cried? Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free. And break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst seek my, thy all in me. If God wants to bring you close to him, what he's saying is he will cut away that which keeps you from him. And it probably won't be pleasant. You see, the thing about the vine dresser's knife is that we will do anything to escape it. So how do we do this? How do we live in the reality of all this? We get the command. And the command is simply this one word, abide. Jesus' command for his disciples, these disciples who are about to abandon him, but also through whom he will build his church. What are they to do? Abide. Hey, remember Jesus is telling him they must continue the mission. He's leaving, but through his spirit, he's gonna continue his mission through them and that they must bear fruit. But before he tells them what to do, look at verse three. He tells them who they are. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Jesus says, remember who you are. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what I have done for you. So, because of that, Abide in me. How do we do that? Verse seven, he says, abide in my words. Remember what I've told you. Feed on them, feast on them, take them in, cling to them. And what has he told them? Verse nine. The most mind-blowing things ever. In verse nine, he says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
Think about it. These men gave up their entire lives, their entire futures, okay? Everything they had to that point in their lives, they gave it up at the expense of following this man. And they are about to watch him be beaten, scourged, and hung up on a stick to die. And Jesus says to them, hold on to me, cling to me, remember what I've said to you, that I love you. And he loves us the same way that the Father loved him. I just want to conclude this. How are you going to change? How is your life truly going to change? How is your life truly going to be different? How are you going to be a Christian? Live life for Jesus. Why is it that so many of us feel that the Christian life is such a burden? Why is it that when Jesus says, remember my words, all I hear is how much I need to get better? Why is it that I can hear, know, and believe that I've been saved by the grace and love of God, but it takes just the smallest of things to make me forget that? Why is that? What do you think Jesus wanted his disciples to take away from this when he says all this? What do you think he wanted them to remember? Do you think he wanted them to remember, if you don't do what I've taught you, you'll be cut off and thrown in the fire? you think that's what he was giving them? Or do you think he wanted to remember this? Remember above all else my words that I love you. Okay, but the thing is, he did say that you will be, you know, if you don't abide in me, you'll be cut off and thrown in the fire. He's saying that if you are not in my love, you don't have life. What is it? Look at verse 11. Concludes with this. He says, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The Father, the vine dresser, Jesus the vine, our Savior, the Spirit, our advocate, as we saw last week, they are using all of their power for one purpose, to bring about fruit in our lives and to build branches for the kingdom. And they do not do, he does not do that because he's a taskmaster. He does it because he wants our joy. He wants our joy. And not only does he want our joy, he wants his joy in us. Well, what is his joy? I think the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 gives us a hint when he says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of of the throne of God. I want to close uh, with this illustration from one of my favorite movies as a kid and also one of my favorite illustrations uh, from my campus minister from this movie. It's the movie Hook. I did not realize it came out in 91. That was a long time ago. I hope you've seen this movie. It's amazing. Um, It's an awesome take on the Peter Pan story. Peter Pan, uh, played by Robin Williams, he's all grown up. He's a lawyer. He's forgotten who he is. Hook comes into our world and kidnaps his kids so that Peter Pan will come back. Okay, so he goes back to Never Neverland to rescue his kids. And he's trying to figure out who he is, whether he's Peter Pan or not. Uh, And at the end of the movie, you get this final battle scene where he's remembered that he's Peter Pan. He's flying around in his green tights and he's fighting the pirates, trying to rescue his kids. And the whole time he's talking to his son. And you see his son has forgotten who he is. His son now thinks he belongs to Hook. His son is actually wearing 
the garb of pirates. He's wearing the wig and the hat and the, and the robe and the, and the eye patch. And so Peter Pan is, is trying to rescue him and he's talking to his son. And as his son is looking at his father, he's starting to say, I, I think I know this guy. And he actually starts shedding these pirate garments. He takes off the hat, he takes off the eye patch. And Peter Pan, his father, is explaining to his son the key to becoming Peter Pan again. And it's his happy thought. And he tells his son this. He says, I found my, my happy thought. It took me three days to find it. But you want to know what it was? It was you. It was you. At that moment, his son is his son again. It's this amazing picture that I think we see here that Jesus says, you bring him tremendous joy when you are in him. You bring joy to Jesus when you are covered by his blood. You bring joy to Jesus even when you bring your doubts and your failures, your skepticism. He takes joy in you when you're covered in his righteousness. You bring joy to Jesus when you are his is what he's telling his disciples here. And that is what changes you. And it is the only thing that can. That's it. We sang it a minute ago. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous sinners Jesus came to call. Are you bearing fruit? Are you connected to the vine? Are you in Christ? The invitation there is not one of overwhelming expectation. The invitation is one of joy. Jesus says, I want you to come in to my joy. And what is that? You. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we long to know and see your face, your face which shines down upon us, your face which covers us with love and grace and mercy. Father, as you tell your disciples here a few verses later that you don't call us servants, but you call us friends, brothers and sisters. Father, that you have ushered, that Jesus, that you have ushered us to the Father's side And there we are sons and daughters of the king himself, co-heirs with you. We long to know that, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would abide in us, that we might abide in you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.